Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Now, today, I have a special guest with me that is maybe a little bit out of the norm from who I would normally interview on this show, but it is an incredible, incredible conversation. So joining me today is Kartik Hosanagar, and he is the professor at Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and his research, uh, his, his research work really focuses in on, on the digital economy, in particular, internet media, internet marketing, and e-commerce. Now, while that maybe might not sound so exciting in, in the, out the gates, um, he is also the author of a book called A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. So basically, he's written a book all about artificial intelligence. And it's quite an interesting book to say the least. And some of the some of the things that uh, Kartik has been uh, able to do is just incredible. He was actually recognized as one of the world's top 40 business professors under 40. And he's received multiple teaching awards, including the MBA and undergraduate excellence in teaching awards at the Wharton School, along with co-founding a and starting up a company called Yodel Inc., which was a venture-backed firm uh, that has been listed among the top 50 fastest-growing private firms in the United States, uh, which has actually been sold and acquired uh, by a different company. So he has uh, supported companies like Google, Nokia, American Express, and so many others. He's done some incredible things. But the reason why I wanted to have him on the show today is really to talk about artificial intelligence. It's to talk about machine learning and to kind of raise some awareness around this this thing, this entity that has kind of been surfacing in our world that maybe we don't know too much about. And one of the one of the aims of this podcast was actually to give you and me the understanding of how these things impact our world, because the reality is is that when Kartik and I started to talk, uh, he gives so many examples of how we interact with artificial intelligence on a daily basis and maybe don't even know it. He also gives multiple examples of how machine learning and algorithms dictate so many of the decisions that we make on a daily basis, from the things that we watch, to the things that we eat, to the ads that we see. It's really quite incredible uh, to have this perspective. And so the intention of this podcast is to help inform all of us on how machine learning, how artificial intelligence impacts our daily lives, how we can understand not only the impact of that, but how we can sort of course correct and take control uh, of some of these pieces in our own life uh, when it can seem overwhelming, especially in an area that can seem confusing or overwhelming or, um, you know, basically... It's another way of saying not many of us know a lot about artificial intelligence. And we hear a lot of these conversations from people like Bill Gates or Elon Musk about the topic. And they're incredibly uh, smart and intelligent and they're in the know. Uh, but it's, a, it's another thing to get a professor and uh, an entrepreneur's viewpoint on how these things impact our daily life. So uh, Kartik is able to not only eloquently but simply um, lay out some of these topics. So here's some things that we actually dive into in the podcast. So we we talk about 
what machine learning actually is, what artificial intelligence or uh, machine intelligence actually is, where it shows up in our daily lives, what we can expect in the future, uh, what our children can expect, how we can support our kids with making informed decisions, and how we as adults, we as uh, parents or non-parents, uh, can make informed decisions on the products and the services that we use. So we we really talk about a lot, but I think the really cool part is that he's able to break down artificial intelligence and some of these very complex issues in very, very simple ways, and we have a great discussion about it. So before I bring him on, just a quick reminder for all the guys that are out there listening to this podcast, don't forget to join the Man Talks community on Facebook. We've got some great dialogue and conversation there. Uh, we also have the Alliance which is going strong. We've got some great men in that. And I am excited to announce uh, the Men's Work Weekend. So um, I've been doing men's work for quite a few years now. And uh, we have rented out some private property, a cabin on a lake in British Columbia in Western Canada. And we're going to take a small group of men to do a, uh, a weekend of deep work and connect um, so there's going to be some great stuff there. Uh, it's right on the lake. It's in, nestled in the, in the forest, in the woods. And we're only accepting 15 men. So I hope that you check that out. You can go to mantalks.com and check out the men's weekend there. If it looks like something that you want to be a part of, you want to be a, a, around a group of like-minded men doing some work on your purpose, on your relationship, on your, on your parenting, on yourself, most importantly, definitely check that out and apply if it resonates for you. So... Without any further delay, please welcome Kartik Hosanagar. Connor, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. This is uh, this is kind of like my geeky side coming out. You know, I've I've always been fascinated with this field, with this industry. It's something that, admittedly, I I definitely don't know enough about. Uh, so I'm really really excited to dive into this topic. But before we go too far down uh, the rabbit hole, I'm going to start off with the normal question, which is: Tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today? Well, let's see. Uh, today, my life is defined by my kids and they've changed my approach to life. Um, but I guess in terms of transformative things, I might go back to uh, you know uh, an event or a, an episode from my childhood. Uh, I grew up in uh, middle-class India in the 1980s. Uh, and during that time, you know, there were very few economic opportunities in India. Uh, things were very competitive. Everyone's fighting for the same resources. Your parents are very competitive as far as how you perform in school is concerned because that sets you up for your trajectory and you know the job you will have and whether you'll get out of the middle class rut. Um, and so everyone is so focused on academic grades. Uh, you're almost defined by your grades and and you know you're told by your teachers so and so is number one in this class. This person's number two, so you know your exact ranking in the class. And um, my grades throughout most of elementary school, middle school, they were average at best. In fact, I was pretty much a below average kid. And uh, it was obvious at school, at home, among relatives, you're always compared with others. And so you know where you are in that uh, totem pole. And so in some ways, you know, I think my childhood, while a happy childhood, as far as my confidence was concerned, uh, I didn't have much, and there was a general lack of self-esteem. And roughly around when I was in eighth grade, my, uh, my brother introduced me to trivia. Uh, and we grew up in a city called Bangalore, which had a very big uh, culture around trivia and quizzes and so on. And he got into it, and he introduced me to it. 
Uh, and I also ended up participating in a lot of these trivia contests. And a couple of years later, when I was in 10th grade, our team was ranked number one in the state. And we would get recognized for it. Our teachers would recognize it. My peers would recognize it. And suddenly, you know, doing well at something, anything at all, uh, changed my whole approach uh, to myself. You know, it made me more self-confident. I started participating in more extracurricular activities and doing well in those debates and acting and so on. And as my confidence grew, you know, my grades improved. I started doing well in school. And, you know, today I, you know, have a lot of confidence in what I do. But really, uh, you know, when I contrast that with almost an inferiority complex I had as a child, uh, I'm amazed how uh, that transformation happened. And it, it started with just one small thing and doing well at something and kind of realizing, well, if I can do well at this, I can do just as well as anyone else at pretty much any other activity. And so I've taken that kind of mindset into a lot of things um, in my professional life and also uh, you know, to life's challenges in general. Yeah, I mean that's that's in- incredible. I love that story because I think it's so applicable for for so many people who have you know st- struggled with something in their childhood, whether it was you know a broken family system or uh, I, I look at myself as a great example. I I was horrible at reading as a kid, and I hated reading in front of the class. It was just like something that I despised uh, despised doing. And, you know, nowadays I multiple times a year will go speak on large stages around the world. And, and it's just, it's incredible how you can shift. And it sounds like you have had a, had a quite the shift. So how did you go from there to, to doing the work that you, that you do in the world? Because it seems like, you know, with, with everything that you, that you're doing with your, your company and uh, the new book that you have coming out about machine intelligence, it, it's really quite an uh, incredible trajectory. So what got you interested in the field of research and, and study and, and the work that you actually do today? Yeah. So interestingly, I, you know, after school, I went into engineering, a very technical field. Uh, I did well in engineering, but um, throughout that time, I realized that, you know, I wasn't enjoying as much sitting and doing the hardcore coding. I was really excited about technology, but what fascinated me was technology in business, technology and its uh, impact on society, the human technology interface, and so on. And so I was looking at how do you do something that's related to technology, but that's not engineering per se. Um, I actually wanted to do uh, a tech-focused MBA and get into, uh, you know, business functions and technology. So I applied to a bunch of uh, business schools in the U.S. And then I realized how expensive an MBA is, and I certainly didn't have that kind of money. And so one professor uh, at Carnegie Mellon University wrote back to me and said, uh, you know, when I asked uh, him whether, you know, he would have a research assistantship that could pay for my uh, MBA, he said that, you know, he would be able to pay for my PhD if I join a PhD program and I do some research with him. And so it was really uh, not with a, a desire, deep desire to do research, but initially driven by just, um, you know, economic uh, considerations that I uh, enrolled in the PhD program. But as the PhD program, you know, went along, I started to enjoy research. I started to realize um, that I could be uh, working with the industry, could do applied work in a PhD program in business and, and um, you know, essentially uh, be able to control a little more, you know, what is it that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. And so that's what got me into research. 
And then over time, you know, it was my fascination with technology that, you know, my research became essentially focused on how do consumers use technology? How does how does technology affect us as individuals? How does it affect us as a society? How can businesses use technology better? So that's essentially what I've been studying for the last uh, 15 years. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And it, I mean, it sounds like it's been going incredibly well in all of those, maybe not all of those fields, but some some of those topics we're actually going to dive into today. And so, you know, maybe without... Um, Maybe without going too far astray, we should we should actually touch on this. And I was kind of thinking in preparation for this talk how we could sort of disseminate some of this information because machine intelligence and artificial intelligence and all, all these different areas it's such a broad uh, such a broad topic. And so maybe if you can just break down or define um, what machine intelligence is to the average person, like how, how would you do that? Yeah, so machine intelligence, also artificial intelligence, there are two terms to refer to the same idea, which is how do we get computers to do the kinds of things that it takes human intelligence to do? So, for example, mm -hmm. to be able to understand language and converse with people, to be able to recognize people and navigate the visual world, to be able to hold objects, to manipulate objects, and so on. So that's essentially the world of machine intelligence and, and human intel uh, and artificial intelligence. Um, and the question then becomes: How do we build these systems that have this kind of intelligence? And in the past, one approach was that you kind of uh, interview experts and you codify their rules, right? So if you wanted to diagnose diseases, you want you want a machine to be able to diagnose diseases, you go interview doctors. And you write down all the rules they use, and you essentially hard code those rules into those machines. But it turns out it's hard to build human-like intelligence with something like that. You can't really go too far. And what's happened is the emphasis recently has shifted towards uh, another term known as machine learning. And machine learning is the idea of how do you get machines to learn. And learning today is probably the most important subfield within artificial intelligence, because if you create a, a machine that's uh, almost a, or even as good as human beings, but it cannot learn, then a day later, I've left the machine behind because I've learned something new. But on the other hand, you have a very simple uh, piece of software uh, that doesn't have my intelligence, but that can learn faster than me, then it'll not only catch up with me, but it'll be ahead of me in, in due course. And that's where the emphasis has shifted. So that's essentially what machine intelligence or artificial intelligence is around. We also hear about machine learning. Um, and that's essentially the idea of uh, learning in order to gain intelligence. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so when you say like, you know, we're, we're programming or designing some of these machines uh, to learn, how how does that maybe not not in a, in necessarily like a, a deep way, but how does it actually work? How do we go about creating machines and programs that uh, that are self-learning? How do we go about that in the first place? Is that from the study of, of the human brain that we came about that? Or, or how did that unfold? Yeah, sure. So let me go back to the example I mentioned. Let's say you want to diagnose diseases or you want to recognize faces uh, in a photograph and you wanted to do that. As I mentioned, the old way to do that might be to interview experts and write down rules. Um, and so, for example, uh, you know, you interview doctors and you find out rules. But it turns out these kinds of systems are not, you know, super intelligent. And so the alternative, uh, there are many alternatives, but the learning alternative is that you give it lots of data. 
So what one might do is we might collect data on, say, a million patients who visited hospitals over the last several years. Um, and we have the details about the patients, you know, what was their weight, what was their blood pressure, what was their temperature, what problems did they come in with, and we have the final diagnosis of the doctor. And we give this data to the machine and say, figure out the pattern. So learn essentially the kinds of patterns that lead a doctor to say something is pneumonia and something else is common cold and something else is uh, influenza and so on. And so that's the idea of learning. And to understand the power of that, uh, let's say I gave you a photograph and there's a hundred people in the photograph. And I said, uh, point out which one is your mom in that photograph of a hundred people. It would be very easy for you to do that. Next, I could ask you, give me the rules that you use to identify your mom in that photograph. Incredibly hard to do. And you will give me a set of rules. I'll apply those rules in my computer, but my machine will not be able to recognize your mom in a new photograph. That's because there's a lot of knowledge that you have that cannot be easily expressed in the form of rules. So rather than get the knowledge out of you, instead, I will try and build a system that will learn just like you. And think about how we learn. How does a child learn? Initially, you just you know, observe patterns. Somebody teaches you that's a cat and you look at it and you say, okay, that's a cat. Next time you look at a four-legged animal that is around the same size, you say, hey, there's another cat. And then your uh, mom or dad or somebody tells you, no, that's not a cat, that's a dog. And now you learn, okay, that's a dog and that's a cat. At some point you learn, you know, cats are not the same as tigers, even though they look similar. The way we learn is we see more and more data and we build, we recognize these patterns. And these machine learning systems are doing the same. You give them lots of data and you give them answers and you say, this is a photograph of a cat. This is a photograph of a dog. Here's a photograph of a, of a human. This is a photograph of Bob and that's of Connor and so on. And now it starts to see the patterns, much like human beings do. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because the brain is is essentially at its core function a a bit of a pattern recognition machine, and so <laughs> and so now exactly. we're now we're now we're creating machines that do much of the same thing. And how we teach it is just by showing it patterns and and sort of coding it and codifying it so that it can learn uh, what those different patterns actually mean and how to identify them. Right. And in fact, within machine learning, there's many ways to do machine learning. There are many algorithms for machine learning. Um, if you look at the progress that's been made in machine learning over the last 10 years, it's one of the primary reasons is that we've had success in an approach of machine learning known as neural networks. And if you look at what are neural networks, they're actually trying to mimic the human brain. They're modeled on how the human brain works because the human brain has essentially a series of neurons. And when we see something, we hear something, certain neurons fire, and we our brain essentially sees the pattern of which neurons fires to be able to figure out what is actually happening. And it's the same thing with these uh, digital neural networks. It's uh, They have virtual or digital neurons, and they look at a photograph or they look at whatever they need to identify and certain digital neurons fire and based on which ones fire they figure out here's an image of connor or of karthik interesting okay so that's that's sort of the breakdown which is which which sort of i think hopefully has set the groundwork and the framework a little bit uh for the listeners around how machine intelligence works and and how machine learning maybe at the sort of foundational level works which is similar to how we as 
kids started to, you know, I think, I think the, the analysis that you, or the analogy, sorry, that you used was great. You know, like how did we start to identify our parents? How do we start to identify people in our lives? And, and we can train machines to do the exact same thing. So over the past couple of years, how have you seen your industry evolve? Because I think the interesting thing, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, technology continues uh, to expand and, and grow at a very rapid rate. And I'm, I'm curious to know whether or not the, the technology that we have in our society today sort of correlates to what you thought it would be 10 or 15 years ago, or is it radically different than what you imagined would be created? Yeah, I would say the technology today is similar to what we imagined in the past, except it's all happened much faster than at least I imagined it, mm. right? It's phenomenal in terms of how the technology has progressed. Um, and if you look at it, you know, 15, 20 years back when I was doing my PhD, we used to talk about, you know, uh, what were then called decision support systems. You know, how do you build a system that can help a human being make better decisions, and now we're kind of talking about autonomous systems that can make decisions on their own that can function autonomously like uh, driverless cars and such. Um, and in fact, at the heart of all these systems is a computer algorithm. An algorithm is essentially just a series of steps a computer follows to get something done. So for example, you know, when I make an omelet, there's a series of steps I follow. You could call it my omelet recipe, but the computer scientist in me calls it a computer algorithm. And uh, all of these systems we use today, whether it's Amazon's recommendation system or a driverless car or Alexa, all of them have algorithms in them that kind of dictate what they do. And these algorithms are, you know, pretty much today running big chunks of our life. You know, when if you look at it, they influence what products we buy, uh, say on Amazon, uh, what media we consume, say on Netflix. In fact, at Amazon, uh, studies show that a third of our choices are driven by algorithms. At Netflix, 80% of our views are driven by algorithms. Algorithms also drive who we date and who we marry through recommendations on apps like Tinder and Match.com. They even make life and death decisions for us today. Uh, for example, in hospitals, doctors are being asked to consult algorithms that uh, might uh, choose treatment options or in uh, courtrooms in the U.S., judges and parole officers are asked to consult algorithms that predict whether a defendant is likely to uh, reoffend in the future, and so to figure out whether a person should get parole or whether they, their sentence should be five years or ten years. So they're all around us, whether in our personal life or in the professional lives. They're making a lot of decisions for us and about us. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think you were talking about you know, doctors using algorithms, and I think for quite a few years now, um, there's dozens of hospitals all over North America that are using IBM's Watson program and uh, utilizing the the, the Watson uh, machine. I, I guess using the Watson AI to to actually um, upload case files and be able to uh, have Watson sort of collectively. Uh, look at a lot of the latest research, a lot of the latest data that's out there, pull that back in and and help the doctors actually define 
what disease it might be or what cutting edge medication might be used to solve uh, or treat the patient. And so it's interesting to see how this machine learning, how this machine intelligence is actually being used on a day-to-day basis. Would you, like, what would you say is the primary function of machine intelligence? Because from a layman's perspective, from somebody who doesn't know too much about this, it seems like the the core intention has has almost been to, you know, to solve problems that we can't solve or to simplify and streamline our life by being able to more efficiently and effectively recognize patterns that that we normally uh, might not be aware of consciously. Absolutely. I think the goal is very much to solve problems that we find too hard or to solve the problems we are solving on a day-to-day basis, but to do it better and faster. And most of that is based on a machine's ability to analyze data, analyze more data than us and faster than us. Um, And so, for example, a doctor, you know, it's hard for a doctor to just keep up with all of the new research that's coming in all the time. It's hard for a doctor to look through a database of millions of cases that other doctors are seeing and to figure out what new patterns are there. But an AI system can do that super fast. And so it seems like a great opportunity to compliment the doctor and to bring in all this knowledge that a doctor might not be able to see. And of course, we're using doctors as an example here, but that's true for just about any profession, right? So you could uh, talk about an insurance agent that's trying to uh, price an insurance premium, that's trying to determine whether you get a mortgage or not. Again, an algorithm could drive that. You look at a recruiter that's getting thousands or hundreds of thousands of job applications that has to analyze that many resumes and figure out who to call for an interview at uh, one of these large companies. It's hard for a human being to do all of that. A machine can actually do that uh, and and do it reasonably well. Um, And so there's a lot of opportunity and, and the scope of these machines is increasing. It's, it's, it's amazing how many decisions today are driven by machines. Not many of us realize it. You make a mortgage application, there's a machine somewhere that's kind of deciding whether we get it and what's the rate we play. You apply for a job, there's a machine that's again figuring out whether we're invited for an interview. So there's a lot of activities and decisions in our life where machines are playing a role. Yeah, I love that you keep giving examples because I think it's it's so good for people to sort of contextualize where this actually shows up because it's it's sort of I mean it's it's almost a little I think for some people it's almost a little terrifying how seamlessly uh our, you know machine intelligence artificial intelligence has actually integrated within our day-to-day lives almost uh, almost effortlessly right like we don't really think about it and so i love that as we're going along you're sort of giving us these examples like you know what we watch on on netflix and and just these you know when we apply for a mortgage because i think for the average person on any given day they don't realize how many times they're actually interacting with machine intelligence and so uh, you know i guess i guess the question is do you feel like at some point this will create a dependency. Do you feel like do we, do you feel like there is an integration within sort of like our our biomechanics? Like, where do you see machine intelligence sort of going in the in the near future or not too distant future? Yeah, in my book, uh, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, I actually start off with the book with a chapter uh, called "Free Will in an Algorithmic World." 
And in that, I get into how they're driving so many decisions for us and indeed creating a certain amount of dependency. And in fact, I uh, described the story of a student of mine who, uh, you know, after a class on algorithms, started to reflect on his typical day and came to me and shared the story about how algorithms were driving so many decisions for him. Uh, he has a smart alarm that decides what day, I mean, what time in the morning he wakes up. So from the moment when he wakes up, an algorithm is deciding things for him. He calls an Uber, an Uber, uh, you know, an algorithm decides who, you know, which driver he gets matched to and what amount he pays. Is he paying $5 today or $15 today for his ride? An algorithm decides that. He comes into work and again, or rather or to school, and then he has these job interviews and LinkedIn algorithms are exposing him to job opportunities and who he should network with and so on. And I talk about how, you know, this student came to me and he said, wow, I have no clue that, you know, all of these things are being driven by algorithm. After you mentioned it in class, I started writing it down and here's my list. And it was this long list. Uh, so indeed, it's kind of creating a dependency. I think to some extent, uh, some of us even have this false notion of free will that we're making our choices deliberately, but we're being nudged in different directions. What show you saw on Netflix might have been driven by its algorithm's decision to uh, push certain shows towards you. You meant to buy a certain product and Amazon's recommendation algorithm said, people who viewed this product eventually bought this other product and you go buy it. We think we're making the final decision, but the algorithm is actually nudging us in all these different directions. And I think most of that is good, but I think we also should be worried about dependency because there are times where we need to have certain control. Um, and uh, the other issue is that, you know, we tend to think of these algorithms as being rational, infallible machines that are very objective, but we're now starting to learn that machines can have biases much like human beings. I mentioned algorithms being used in courtrooms in the US. There was a study last year that showed that uh, these sentencing algorithms that figure out risk scores of a defendant reoffending, they have a race bias and they were biased against African-Americans. There was another story late last year about uh, Amazon trying to build an algorithm for resume screening and they eventually did not roll this algorithm out because it had a gender bias, whatever they did, where they tried to fix it, but it had these biases. So I think algorithms have biases. And if we completely become dependent without consciously acknowledging that an algorithm is making decisions and here's how it works and here's how it can be biased or be misled, you know, we are we will be facing certain risks if we, if we are not careful about this. Yeah, I mean that's so it's so fascinating as you're saying some of those examples. It's like the the first question that comes to my mind is like, how is that even possible? <laughs> like, how is it even possible <laughs> that that these you know algorithms can have a biases? Is that like the first thing that comes to mind is is that human made? Is that because we have biases and we are creating these algorithms? Like, is that is that a part of it, or or what's what's the sort of speculation of why that happens? Yeah, it's funny. I think uh, people, you know, when I talk about biases, you know, they wonder, hey, is an engineer actually programming this bison and, and kind of creating an algorithm that's sexist or racist? Um, and, you know, it re this issue recently came up when uh, uh, AOC, uh, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted about algorithms being biased uh, and then picking up uh, human biases and people uh, were kind of uh, up in arms saying, hey, you know, is a programmer programming this? What are you trying to suggest? 
And it's really interesting. It's not obvious where they come from. And in the book, I was trying to figure out, you know, what's a good way to explain this? And as I was thinking about it, there was a su- surprising insight that I had, which is that to understand where algorithm biases come from, we actually can look at human psychology. Uh, so with humans, when we observe problematic behavior and we study it, we attribute it eventually to either nature or nurture. So nature is essentially our genetics, the thing that is coded into us. Uh, And nurture is our environment, our friends and who we hang out with. And so if you look at uh, problems like say alcoholism, you know, there's some of it that is tied to genetics, some of it is uh, tied to, you know, who who you hang out with. Um, And similarly, I realized algorithms have nature and nurture too. Nature is essentially their code which is hard-coded into these machines by engineers, right? And so uh, that's essentially where if an algorithm is misbehaving, you could ask, did the engineer code in uh, this? And sometimes it happens when you have hackers or malicious people who try and do this. But mostly algorithm biases don't come from their nature. It's not programmed into it. That's where nurture comes in. An algorithm's nurture is essentially the data from which they learn. That's their environment. And so I mentioned earlier, today, modern algorithms learn from data. The biases are in the data. So if you want an algorithm to learn how to screen resumes, then you need to give it data. And so you might give it data on a million people who have applied for jobs in the past. And who did we invite for an interview? And who did we not invite for an interview? And who did we eventually give a job offer to? And who did we not give a job offer to? So if it's trying to replicate those decisions, then it's going to also replicate the biases that are in that data. So if the decision makers in the past had biases, then the algorithm learns those biases. And then it institutionalizes those biases when it's rolled out across the organization. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's so interesting because one of the questions that I wanted to ask you today was actually, you know, where is the intersection between algorithms and psychology? Because it it seems like they're not, that that they are not one and the same necessarily, but they are they they heavily influence one another. And I think a, a great example of this is I mean, there's a few different examples of this, but you know, both both Twitter and Facebook, uh, you know, have created artificial intelligence. I think Twitter created something called Tay uh, a year or two back. I think it was in 2016 and brought it online. And it's interesting because as you you just sort of uh, said, the environment in which this artificial intelligence came online in the environment was not necessarily conducive for it to uh, for for it to like really have great conversations and i think within within something like 30 to 45 minutes they shut down the program because it was sort of creating a lot of you know racist and uh, sort of very ignorant memes and comments and tweets and stuff like that and it was starting to derail and so is that is that an example of of the nature and nurture that you're talking about yeah tay is a very interesting and, and an uh, excellent example so tay was actually originally created by microsoft and deployed on twitter mm. um, and actually tay's origins has an interesting history so it all started with Microsoft launching a chatbot, meaning a, a, a bot or an algorithm that can chat with people. And it launched a chatbot called Shawice in China. And uh, it was released in the social networks in China, and it became a huge success. Uh, at some point, you know, Shawice had about 40 million followers in China. And Shawice had the avatar or the persona of a 
teenage girl and it uh, would engage in fun, playful conversations. And it was so successful that Microsoft asked, you know, shouldn't we release a similar chatbot in the US? So that's when they created Tay, which was another chatbot uh, meant to engage in fun, playful conversation, again, clear, created in the avatar of a 13 or 14 year old uh, girl. And they released it on Twitter. And as you said, it engaged in, uh, you know, highly offensive conversations, racist, sexist, fascist, you name the ist, and it engaged in that. Um, it was so problematic that Microsoft had to shut it down within 24 hours of launching it. Um, and in fact, MIT Technology Review later ranked it as the worst technology of the year. <laughs> and it kind of begs this question, how could the same company trying to build the same kind of technology have such different outcomes, right? One with 40 million followers and the other being such a PR nightmare. Yeah. And it comes down to nurture. It comes down to the data on which they're trained. And so Tay was asked to converse on Twitter like other people converse on Twitter. And Twitter isn't exactly, you know, uh, the place where you learn how to have a conversation with people. <laughs> um, and so it picked up how to uh, tweet on t Twitter and furthermore, there were people who were trying to trip Tay and they were intentionally conversing with uh, Tay in offensive ways and Tay picked all that up and it became like the sexist, racist, fascist chatbot that's uh, memorialized on so many websites on the internet today. Uh, a huge embarrassment for Microsoft, but it comes down to, you know, how's it learning? What data is it learning from? And also, are you putting some rules in place, setting some boundaries on what it's allowed to do and not allowed to do. Because if you don't set the boundaries, then it could pick up anything possibly from the data and then uh, you know engage in the kinds of biases we we see in humans as well. Well, I mean, I think the interesting part is is that Tay, you know, coming online since we've already sort of made the and this is a high level correlation, but is you know we've already made the correlation between uh, in machine learning being somewhat similar to how kids sort of learn and, and replicate patterns and what they see in the environment that they're in, which which we know is very much true, right? How children learn is very environmentally based. Um, the behaviors that they see, the language that they hear, the you know the what they what they see is as acceptable or are taught as acceptable versus non acceptable boundaries. Um, and, and so it's it's interesting because it's almost like in some ways it could be seen as a reflection of of how certain social media platforms or so social media platforms in general can be a very sort of not dangerous place, but a, a formative place for kids to to sort of be shaped in different directions. And so how how do you see um, you know, being a father, being in this field, how do you deal with that with with your children per, sort of personally? Because I would imagine that there's a lot of challenges in being able to um, have our kids, you know, be be somewhat aware, be somewhat um, guarded and boundaried in their use of technology. But we obviously can't sort of um, hold them back from seeing the the garbage and just the the sort of venom that's out there on the internet. So as a parent, how do you deal with that? And what do you recommend to other parents knowing uh, knowing what you know? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and to your uh, earlier point about um, the algorithms and the analogy to human behavior and to children, you know, one of the, uh, I guess, analogies or statements I use in my book is that uh, if we are observing our algorithms are going rogue, 
then it's possibly because our algorithms are hanging out with the wrong data, right? Just to yeah, hit like home that. this point uh, about, you know, who are the algorithms hanging out with. But what can, you know, what can we do? I think uh, there's the question of what can we do as parents, and then there's a broader question, which is what can we do as uh, members of uh, the society? And in terms of as parents, you know, it's certainly something that I uh, think about when I have my uh, son who's gravitates towards screens and um, is very adept at using technology and, and uh, you know, uh, and tends to use it uh, a lot. I always make sure that it is curated, that that environment is curated for my uh, son. Um, so as a simple example, you know, YouTube has videos, you know, and, and, and my son would type in, you know, some kiddie show he wants to watch, like he'd type in PJ Masks and he's watching PJ Masks. And then I come back in and after half an hour or 20 minutes, I see he's watching something that's clearly not appropriate for him. And I kind of see, how did you get here? And uh, he says, oh, no, YouTube just played that. And then I would kind of hit back and back and back and see how, you know, YouTube's autoplay kind of would choose one video after the other and take him down this path. And before you know it, he's outside this world, which is meant for kids. Um, and so now, you know, I make sure that, you know, you have, for example, there's YouTube kids log him in into the YouTube kit kind of setting and then let him watch something. Um, and so I think we have to do these kinds of things. I think we have to make sure that, you know, the internet is literally the wild, wild west uh, today. And so there's the good, there's the bad, and there's everything in between. And I think for kids who are so easily influenced and whose mental faculties and, and maturity isn't quite there yet, I think we have to, uh, protect and curate the right environment for them. And so I tend to do that. Um, and I think there's a broader question, which is what can any of us do in a world where technology is uh, all around us, so influential, and at some level, we kind of feel we're at the mercy of uh, machines. Um, and I think there is stuff we can do. We shouldn't feel like we're completely helpless. And the power we have is essentially our knowledge, uh, our votes, and our dollars. And by knowledge, I mean, you know, just being aware of when we are using technology, what kinds of decisions are being made for us or about us, you know, is our algorithms making that decision? Uh, how is it changing the kinds of decisions being made? Or do we find this acceptable? If not, then we demand changes or we walk away from it. And uh, I think that's where also our votes and our dollars come in. I think backing representatives who provide some consumer protection, who are, understanding what's going on with technology, keeping up with it, um, and, and therefore can speak intelligently about consumer protection is important. Uh, and in terms of our dollars, it's ultimately voting with our dollars, right? So it's figuring out what's a line that we're not willing to cross. We do want technology, it enhances our lives, but what's a line that we don't want it to cross? And for each of us, it's that line might be different. For some of us, it might be, hey, I don't want this system to have access to this much personal data. And so there's a line as far as privacy is concerned. And I'm not willing to say use Facebook given how much data it collects. For others, it might be okay. For somebody else, it might be okay. I'm willing to use all that, but I don't want a system like Alexa that I can talk to, but that's also potentially listening all the time. And that's a, a, a problem. So I think all of us have maybe a different level of acceptance and that's fine, but we should be clear on what's the line we won't cross and make it clear to these companies that, you know, that we're, 
they can't just unleash the technology on us without us participating in the process of you know where we want technology to be yeah i i really actually appreciate and and value what you just said um at a deep level because i think what you're saying is that we are as consumers the active participants in the technology's creation and i think that that is such an important um viewpoint because i i see far too often that people sort of nonchalantly say oh well companies you know they just create whatever they're going to create and they're just going to be building it it's like yeah well if you don't buy that if you don't participate with that then then they are less likely to build that product and so i you know from that perspective i i really appreciate what you're saying because what you're saying really is is that we have a say in it and that we can do something about it there's something that i that i did want to touch on um before moving on and and i want to talk a little bit about you know the the future of of AI in in some ways, but you know you've talked about uh, algorithms going rogue, and you know there's been other examples like uh, Facebook has uh, two two AIs that they sort of I'm not too sure what their function is exactly. I didn't do enough research on it, but but I think in the, like the last year uh, these these two. Uh, artificial intelligent machines, they actually uh, created a language of their own where we're starting to, to communicate with each other and Facebook had to sort of shut them down and pull them offline. And is is that the example of what you mean going rogue? And how how does that even, how does that happen in the first place? Well, you know, as far as that example is concerned, um, I think some of it was overblown in the media. Mm. Uh, what actually happened was that it was part of a research project where they were trying to see whether algorithms can negotiate with each other. And if we can, in the future, just ask our algorithms to negotiate on our behalf, right? So you want to uh, buy a home or, you know, do some rental negotiations and you kind of tell an algorithm, well, here's my preference, go negotiate for me, right? And, uh, or you want to buy stocks and things like that. You know, there's a lot of negotiations where, you know, again, we're automating so many things, um, you know, might we automate negotiations down the road? And that's what the researchers were testing. And what happened was in one of those tests, they observed the algorithms are actually negotiating with each other and the words don't make any sense to the researchers. And it almost was an example of how, you know, how traders come up with their own lingo and, you know, they talk to each other and they're trading, but, you know, layman listens to that and it makes no sense yeah. to us. That's because they figure out the shorthand way of communicating so they can communicate faster. You know, all, you know, doctors talk to each other in ways we, the layperson cannot understand. And so the algorithms did the same. The risk, of course, is, you know, if such a system were to be deployed in the real world, then these algorithms are making decisions and you kind of look at the actual exchange between them and we cannot make sense of it. And they've made all these uh, big decisions for us. Mm. And that's actually one of the risks. Now, in this case, it was a research project and it was easy enough for Facebook's researchers to add a constraint and say, well, you can only converse in English and you cannot come up with your own language. And then it was fine. But, you know, AI and algorithms are going to be deployed in so many settings. In every settings, are we going to be sure that engineers have put in these checks and balances to make sure that the system doesn't go off in some unusual, unique direction, right? And so that's what uh, is the concern we have. When we talk about algorithms going rogue, there's two ways in which that could happen. One way is that they pick up 
what I might call rogue behavior from data, right? So we talked about algorithms having a race bias or a gender bias uh, when we discuss sentencing algorithms or resume screening algorithms. But there could also be algorithms that are experimenting and seeing what happens if I do this, what happens if I do that. And as they start to do that, uh, this class of algorithms will pick up new behaviors that we might not even have seen in human beings. So they pick up rogue behaviors that, are not even there among humans because they're also experimenting and seeing what happens when I do something or the other. And so picking up a new language and conversing in that, you know, that's another example. So I think these are all the rogue scenarios. And I think it's important, therefore, for us to be talking about, you know, the technology companies that deploy algorithms, they need to make sure these algorithms are transparent transparent to the consumers and to regulators or auditors. For consumers, we might just want simple amount of transparency, right? Just like, is an algorithm being used? What kinds of data about me is are being used by these algorithms before they make a decision on mortgage uh, for me? Uh, and, uh, you know, just, you know, was the decision to not give me a mortgage based on factors like race or my address, or was it based on the things that are allowed by regulation. So just clarity on those. And then there is the transparency to regulators and auditors. So what if something goes wrong and they want to go in and figure out what went wrong? There should be a path or a way for those auditors to audit these systems. And so you want transparency there as well. I think, you know, we as consumers can no longer function with treating technology as a black box that is thrust upon us and we use it. And technology companies can no longer assume that we can keep throwing these black boxes at consumers and it's fine. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier how we are participants in this and we need to take stock of this. An example is Facebook and privacy issues, right? So, you know, people have been talking about Facebook and privacy for years now, you know, five, six years back. And back then, Mark Zuckerberg and others said, look, privacy will mean something else in this new world. And the old standards of privacy should not be enforced in this uh, in this uh, new tech world. And they had this thing that, hey, this is how it is. Just accept privacy the way we think of it. Uh, but you look at the furor over the last year and you look at how Facebook has gone on the defensive and how they're kind of saying, okay, we're rolling out all these new rules and data policies to ensure your data is protected. Uh, that's happened only because at some point, a lot of consumers woke up and said, look, this has just crossed a line for us and we can no longer accept it. I think in all these other settings, we need to be clear about drawing those lines. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's a great, um, it's a really great example because it's something that's very tangible where people did take a stand. You know, I think there was a time where Facebook lost, I, I can't remember what the exact number was, but I think it was somewhere between 20 and 50 million people, you know, logged off and, and deleted their profile and stopped using it. And so they, they saw a dramatic, uh, dramatic plunge in, in users. Uh, and, I, and I think that kind of started to wake, wake them up a little bit, which is, which is great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of running out of time here. And uh, there was one last piece that I wanted to get into, which is, which is really the evolution of this machine intelligence and artificial intelligence. And, you know, one of the things that you brought in before was the concept of neural networks. Uh, we've seen huge advances in uh, different types of computing, like IBM just released their first uh, quantum computer, which is fully functioning and enclosed. Um, and that, you know, that's going to be sold to companies that are going to be using that device. 
are things like quantum computers going to impact the way that we use uh, the way that we use artificial intelligence? Will it help it get to that next step? Because from my understanding, we are still in the area of, of ANI, artificial, I think, normal intelligence. And narrow yeah, intelligence. narrow intelligence. And, and where, where do you think that we'll cross the threshold into artificial general intelligence? Like, what, what do you feel like the time frame is that? Because Ray Kurzweil, you know, is very sort of outspoken on what he thinks, but I'm interested to get your perspective. As you said, today we are in this world of artificial narrow intelligence, which uh, for the listeners who are not familiar with it, is the idea that an AI system can be as good as a human being, but within a narrow domain. So you have, a let's say, a face recognition algorithm that can do as well as us with face recognition, but that's all it does. It cannot drive a car, it cannot uh, you know, recognize uh, or converse with people and so on. And Or you might have a different AI system that can drive a car, but that, that's all it can do. And it can maybe match human beings, but it cannot do other things like converse with people and recognize faces and so on. Artificial general intelligence is the idea that, uh, you know, you have true intelligence like human beings. So the system can pick up how to recognize faces, but it can also pick up how to drive a car. It can also figure, figure out how to talk to people and so on. And I think once we get there, you know, we may as well resign, right? Because you have a system that's as intelligent as us that can learn as well as us, but it's got uh, more processing power and access to more data. And so it's going to get there before us. If we want to invent something, maybe it'll invent it before us. What's the point of inventing it? And so you just have to sit back and relax and hope that the system is going to serve us well and rather, and, and not just take over uh, our lives. In terms of when we might get there, you know, it's hard to say, but the interesting thing is that if you survey some of the leading AI researchers and ask them, you know, how many years are we away from there? That range varies from 30 years to about 75 years. So even the most conservative researchers who think, oh, it's going to take a while before we get there are saying 75 years. So if not our lifetime, our kids' lifetime. So we need to prepare our kids for this kind of a world where AI can do so many things and do many things, um, most of them better than us. And so how do we stay relevant in the uh, workforce? How do we uh, protect ourselves in our personal and professional lives? Uh, all these are legitimate questions. And how do we bring something unique um, into our social and uh, professional uh, undertakings uh, is, again, an interesting question. So I think this is a fascinating area for us, whether we talk about AI today and the biases today, or how do we stay relevant in the workforce 10 years from now, or something more philosophical. What is the role for human intelligence when you've got artificial general intelligence? Yeah, yeah, so fascinating. I feel like that. <laughs> I feel like that's a podcast unto itself that maybe we'll have to dive into one day because, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are now even even if they're just entering into understanding AI in this way, you know, even if they sort of have a a, a basic level of, of understanding of it, like like I do, because um, mine mine is very basic. <laughs> um, it's it, but that's most people, yeah, too, right? Yeah, but it's it's yeah. it's also the, these questions are very prominent, right? It's it's what's going to happen, what is what the future is going to look like for my kids, what's their purpose going to be, you know, are are we creating a technology that's going to replace you know, replace human functionality. And, and so I think these conversations are, are very front and center. So, 
Um, listen, I, I had a great time in this conversation. I, I think the listeners hopefully did as well. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Connor, I enjoyed the conversations. Thanks for those great questions and thanks for having me. Yeah, wonderful. And for everyone that's listening, definitely go check out the book, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. Uh, looks like that's going to be out on March 12th, 2019, this year. So is that is that the right date? Did I get that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. March 12th. It's available for pre-order before that, but on March 12th. It comes. Wonderful. So we'll have the links for all that in the show notes if you want to check that out. And uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to this show. Uh, share this podcast episode with a friend, just one person uh, that you think would enjoy this conversation and get a lot of value out of it and be intrigued by it. So uh, share this with one person. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.